Welcome to the Scottish Folk Podcast. I am your host, Eileen Budd, and this week I've been doing lots of travelling and talking, as always, and I've been thinking about worthies, characters from Scottish history that we used to celebrate in the broadsheets, but that we don't really hear about very often now. And so I thought I'd share some of the stories from Scottish history about these worthy characters, and also some stories from folklore and some stories that are from history but sound like they're folklore, and I hope you enjoy them. I'd like you to meet Dr Ur, who lived in the 1700s along the banks of the Endric Water. And he was, according to the written record, a healer, although some described him as a warlock. He had cures and salves for all diseases. He could exercise demons, ghosts, sell you charms for love, fidelity, fertility, for sundity, pleasantry. He had lotions, potions, premonitions. He could use the second sight by revolving his eyeballs into his skull. He was employed in all manner of matters, including solving crimes. He was called in as a surprise witness in court cases, and he also helped to find the location of bodies. One of his cures for cattle disease involved burying a young healthy cow alive. To cure a man who was spectre-ridden, he gave the man a sleeping ointment, and when the man woke up, in the corner of the room he found a skeleton wrapped in a cowhide representing the ghost that was troubling him, Dr. Ur told him. And then Dr. Ur told the man to run across the moor, throwing his trousers behind him as he went. But don't look back, he said. Don't look back until you're safely home. And the man did it. And he was never again troubled by ghosts. Although I do wonder if perhaps the cure was more traumatic than the ghost itself. Again, we may never know. But here's to you, Dr. Ur. Gaelic is a really important living language in Scotland, not just because it's connected to our landscape and knowing a wee bit of Gaelic is going to help you understand the naming of the hills and the roots and everything, but also because it's connected to our names and our stories and our history and our future. But did you know that knowing a wee bit of Gaelic could even save your life? In 1940, Private William Kemp, Corporal Sandy MacDonald and Lieutenant Corporal James Wilson were all serving in the Argyllshire Battalion. While they were defending a chateau near Abbeville, their ammunition ran out. Their commanding officer surrendered and they were all taken prisoner. Sandy, William and James escaped while they were being marched through a French village and they ditched their uniforms. With no maps or compasses, they made their way through occupied France. They were recaptured. The German commander pointed his revolver at each of them in turn. Scottish men had a choice, to speak the truth or suffer the consequences. And so each decided to only speak Gaelic. A French officer acted as an interpreter and asked them to state their nationality. They replied in Gaelic and the French officer began to get quite irate. He demanded to know where they were from. 
are Tmachen, they said. They were questioned in eight languages until a frustrated commander showed them a map and they pointed to the Ukraine, knowing Germany was at peace with Russia at that time. The Scots were released and then they journeyed through occupied France to Spain where they discovered a British consulate and boarded a vessel and finally got to return home to Balahulish. In a lot of stories from Scottish folklore, sound plays a really important role. For example, in the story of Tam Ashanta, which you're no doubt familiar with, Tam would never have been pursued if he hadn't decided to shout out encouragement to Cutty Sark and all the supernatural dancers that he sees. The second that he does, all music stops, all dancing stops, and he's chased by a demonic and witchy horde. There's also stories about people being taken into fairyland, and if they utter a single word, then they'll be trapped there forever. And there's a story about a well spirit who likes to steal people's voices. And then there's loads of curses, people unable to talk, people talking too much. And then there's all the naming conventions and Scottish traditions like naming your son Big Nose or Ugly One to repel the evil eye of other people. And then there's loads of wordplay as well in Scottish folklore. So for example, when people meet with like a supernatural being, like a Kelpie, a fairy or something like that, then there's a lot of trickery and back and forth and an expectation on the mortal person to engage in that witty repartee. And if they don't, then generally the mortal person will meet a sticky end. And then the most important sound of all in Scottish folklore, perhaps, is the crowing of the black cockroach, which sends all the fairies and goblins and witches, zombies, running back to their homes without hesitation. And then, of course, there's music and charms. You've probably seen one of those videos of a Scottish person or a Scottish celebrity being challenged to say words like purple burglar alarm and that kind of thing. And there's a reason why saying those words can be quite difficult for a Scottish person. And that's because of the closeness of the consonants in those words. In Scottish native languages like Gaelic and Scots, we sometimes insert a vowel where there isn't a vowel. So to make it easier to pronounce. So for example, the word worm in English, I would say worm. <laughs> and the word film, I would say film. And also in Gaelic, you would say jerek and alapa. Now the word alapa is written alba, but it's not pronounced that way. An extra vowel is inserted to make it more pronounceable. And what's the point in this? Well, I just wanted to tell you, because it's something called svarabakti. Inserting that vowel sound is called svarabakti, and it's something that we have in common with Indo-European languages as well, which is quite interesting. And sound plays a huge role in Scottish folk tradition and folklore. Sound is also really important when it comes to Scottish folk tradition and making. So we have walking songs and weaving songs, which are all about keeping the rhythm, which are important when you're walking 
the cloth or weaving. We also have chants that are made to bless the loom, but they have a technical side to them in that they also tell you how to set the warp and set the threads. So, for example, ten of blue and two of red, that's the way to lay the thread. Ten of green and two of white, thus we have the pattern right. There was a Highland drover and he was returning home back up the Dove Road from Falkirk. He didn't have any cattle on him because he'd sold all his cattle. He didn't have any shoes on because, well, he didn't normally wear shoes. And he didn't have any money on him because everyone who'd bought his cattle had given him IOUs, banknotes, which he couldn't use on the way home at all. Totally useless. But he knew that it would pay off once he got back. The thing is, he was starving hungry and he was getting a wee bit cold. He went past the lady's house and he smelt the smell of fresh baked bread. Oh, and can you imagine it? When you're really hungry and you can smell that bread. Well, his stomach was just doing somersaults, just jumping for joy, nearly out his throat. And he knocked on the door and he asked her if he could have some of the bread. Now, it's a bit of an unwritten rule in Scotland that if somebody is needing a wee bit of food and they go past your door, then you should give them it. It's, you know, Highland hospitality and all that. But this lady had obviously never heard of that because she refused, point blank. Not at all, she said. Get away from my door. Well, the Highlander put a wand in the doorframe and he sang very softly, Old grey-haired man who came from the north, he asked for some bread and got not a bite. Suddenly, the lady started singing it and dancing, and she couldn't stop. The old grey-haired man who came from the north, he asked for some bread and got not a bite. She was dancing and singing and dancing and singing. And then her sons came home, and the same thing happened to them. Old grey-haired man came from the north, he asked for some bread and got not a bite. And they were dancing and dancing and singing this over and over and over. And then the daughter came home and the same thing happened to her. And meanwhile, the father, working in the field, was wondering what on earth had happened to his family. So he started going back to the cottage. And then he could see them inside, whirling about. And he could hear them singing this song. And then he saw the old grey-haired man, clearly from the north. So he went over to him, he went over to the Dover and he said, you have to please lift this curse on my family. And the Highlander said, well, you have to remember the rules of Highland hospitality. If somebody comes by, needs some bread, you should give them that bread. And the father says, yes, of course, absolutely. And we promise we will always, always do that from now on. Please lift the curse. So the Dover agrees. He takes the wand out the door and instantly the whole family dropped to the floor, exhausted. The woman gave them half of the bread just straight away. And he started off back up the road, back to his home. And he wasn't hungry anymore. And you better believe that that family always shared their bread with anyone who came past.
beginner rhymes, there's an old Scottish rhyme which goes, From the fort of Ardoch to Grinnan Hill of Care, there are nine kings' rents for nine hundred year. The Roman military complex at Ardoch is unique. The fort is best preserved example of a Roman fort in Scotland, dating from Agricola's first century AD incursions into Scotland. And metres away from Ardoch is Grinnan Hill, a minor Roman fortification, supposedly joined to Ardoch Fort by a tunnel. Now, the outline of that tunnel was visible until 1720, when a condemned man was offered his life, on condition that he would descend into the hole, into the tunnel, and hunt for treasure. So he was let down the hole on a rope, and then drawn back up again a few minutes later, and he was carrying some Roman helmets, spears, and fragments of bridles. And the story goes that he was killed by foul air on his second descent into the hole. And the mouth of the hole was covered up with a millstone, followed by a lot of dirt. So now the exact spot cannot be found. But we still have that rhyme. This next story is one of my favourites from Scottish history. And it's about a lady who is... Well, she just doesn't take any nonsense. So that's why I like her. (laughs) Long before the use of artillery, Dunbar Castle was thought to be impregnable and the key to the Scottish Kingdom on the eastern side. Now, because of this reputation, it was quite often the victim of sieges. And in 1337, Dunbar Castle was again besieged, this time, yet again, by the English army. This time under command of the Earl of Salisbury. And it was defended by the Countess of March, a.k.a. Black Agnes, or Black Aggie. And Black Aggie managed to hold the castle for five months against 20,000 English soldiers. Salisbury tried many things to take the castle. He catapulted huge rocks and lead shot against the ramparts. And Aggie responded by getting her ladies-in-waiting to dust off the ramparts with handkerchiefs in full view of the English army, making a real show of it, really having it up. And then Salisbury built an enormous siege tower called a sow in an attempt to storm the castle. Aggie taunted Salisbury then, ordering a boulder which had been heaved on them earlier to be thrown down from the battlements, smashing Salisbury's sow to pieces. Salisbury also tried to bribe the gatekeeper of Dunbar Castle and gave him a considerable sum of money to keep the door open for him. The gatekeeper took the Earl's money and then immediately told the whole plot to Lady Agnes. Salisbury finally admitted defeat and left on the 10th of June 1338, having achieved absolutely nothing but making Lady Agnes just a wee bit richer. James Robertson of Atho is remembered in the Highlands as being the Strong Minister, a nickname he earned in Loch Broom for the way in which he dealt with particularly rough parishioners because he wasn't too shy about getting into a fight with them and landing a few punches when he felt that he had to. His reputation as a Strong Minister was further supported when, in 1742, the roof of the church at Fern fell, 
killing 44 people and leaving many other ones trapped inside. James managed to put his shoulder to the weak lintel and held it up long enough to allow those trapped people to escape. Now many of his parishioners were pro-Jacobite and they were involved in the Jacobite uprising. When the uprising was put down, his parishioners feared for their lives and their families. James again put his strength to good use and he went down to London in person himself to plead on their behalf. He won their case and he got all of the charges on them dropped. Though it's not recorded how many faces he had to punch to make that happen. Here's a little bit of history that sounds like folklore. And it's also a wee bit of history that kind of became folklore as well. You might not know, but Harris was always renowned for its wise women. And in fact, it's supposed to have been a Harris woman who first noticed that the dairy maids who had already had cowpox were safe from smallpox. And it was Harris that they made use of this. Alexander Carmichael told about a woman who knew a creature called a Friedach. And these Friedachs were believed to be 24 diseases inherent in man and beast. And they were caused by microbes. And the Friedach, small, minute, miserable, full of spite, venom and hostility. The ugly microbe, a Grieg, mother of mischief, smaller than a mite, a grid, the virulent mother of enmity. How the hatching mother of the Greek got into the blood and flesh of a person, it's not easy to understand, and nor is it easy to explain, but one thing, where there were ill care and ill keeping the hatching Greek was there, running from person to person, from house to house, like the want of ill tidings. And oh, how the hatching mother of the Greek brought upon her bad brood, causing gall and venom in the flesh of people. So there you are. Look out for the Friedach. Wash your hands. In Scottish folk tradition, if you borrowed something, then you would have to pay it back with interest. A loan should be sent laughing home, is the phrase. So, for example, if you borrow a cup, then you should give it back with uh, like an unused tea bag in it or a chocolate or something nice. The only thing that that doesn't apply to is salt, which had all these different kind of magical associations with it. And if somebody needed salt, then... It should be given freely and ungrudgingly and it certainly didn't have to be paid back in interest. The theft of salt was the worst kind of theft and it was extremely unlucky for the person who stole it. And this little poem is part of that. Theft of salt and theft from net, thefts from which there is no peace, Till the swart world shall come to an end, the thief of salt shall be down. So, don't steal salt. Last week I shared with you a story from a history, a mystery from history about a giantess. Well, it's not the only one, 
There are lots of stories about giants in Scottish folklore. And this one comes from St Kilda. A long time ago, not in your time or in my time, but in somebody's time, there was a giantess called Kilda. And they say that the island of St Kilda took its name from her, because that's where she lived, in a place called the Female Warrior's Glen, where there's a vault she's said to have cracked open with her sword. Now Kilda was not just a giantess, not just your average giantess, she was a warrior and a huntress. She would bound across the seas like it was nothing. And whatever she wanted and whenever she wanted it, she got it. Now, a wee while ago, there was found in that place where she is said to have lived in St Kilda, a pot of deer grease and a fine set of antlers. Were they her trophies? Well, who's to say? I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Scottish Folk Podcast. And if you did, please tell your friends, share it. You can also find me on Instagram. I am at Eileen Budd. If you would like to support the work that I'm doing with the Travelling Folk Museum, you could buy me a coffee. The link to that is in my Instagram profile. And I would like to give a special shout out, a special thanks to Jason, Deirdre and Abby this week. Thank you so much for supporting my work. Until next time. Just one more thing in the style of Colombo. I got a question sent in to me by a lady called Betty. Betty, thank you so much for your question. You asked, what is the significance of the colours of all the different ladies' dresses in Scottish folklore? Such a good question. And it is worthy of an episode all of its own. As a teaser for that, because I can't go into it all just now, I thought I would just let you know that if it is... A lady who's wearing green in Scottish folklore, generally it relates to the good folk, fairies. If it is folk music, then a green dress and ladies relate to sorrow and forsaken lovers. Now the two might be related, but as I say, probably worthy of an episode all of its own. But thank you so much for sending your question in. It's a really interesting one. And yeah. Hopefully we can dive into that. Hey Brian, 